Good morning, church. Good, I'll say it again. Good morning, church. Good morning. Um, and happy Father's Day to all of the dads among us. As I uh, wish you a happy Father's Day, I want to introduce you to our newest father at New Branch. It is our youth pastor, Jonathan Mitchell. <clears throat> so Jonathan and Kayla's son, Samuel David Mitchell, was born yesterday, uh, 621. Uh, mom and baby are both doing well, and they are healthy. And so uh, we, could, we ask that you continue to pray for them as they uh, get used to this new blessing in their life. Absolutely adorable. Get to go see him this afternoon. So, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Romans chapter 15 this morning. Uh, Lord willing, we will finish chapter 15. Um, in a couple of weeks, we'll begin with chapter 16 and uh, spend um, two or three weeks in that chapter. And then towards the end of the summer, towards the end of July, uh, we'll wrap up our three-year-long or so study of this letter with just a, a snapshot of the whole book. And so I'm looking forward to that. I want to encourage you to come back for that. Um, as we have been in the weeds of this letter for so long, we're going to step back and look at it from a 30,000-foot le level, really as it was intended to be written uh, as just one letter to a church. We're going to look at it. We're not going to read the whole thing uh, that particular Sunday, but we're going to do a summary of the entire book. And then after that, um, what I ask that you continue to be praying that God would give confirmation on what is next. Um, I'm, I'm beginning to sense that he wants us back into the Hebrew Scriptures, into the Old Testament. And uh, I think we're going to be back in Genesis. Uh, a few years ago, we covered the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which covered the creation and covered Noah and the Tower of Babel and all of that. Uh, but we stopped just short of the patriarchs and the story of Ab Abraham. And so I'm looking to uh, potentially uh, begin study chapters 12 through 50 of the book of Genesis, which is just chock full of all kinds of good stuff. Regardless of where we'll be, we'll be in the Bible, and so we can't go wrong there. So I just ask that you continue to pray that God would give clarity about what is next. But this morning... We are in Romans chapter 15, looking at verses 30 through 33. And this, this passage, these four verses, are essentially just Paul's request for prayer. He's asking the Romans to pray for him as he begins to close out this letter. He's asking them some very specific things that he wants them to be praying for him and for his ministry. And so as we begin to dive into this, we ought to ask ourselves, how's our prayer life? How's your prayer life? Do you pray for others? What, what is the current state of your intercessory prayer life? Praying to God on behalf of others. Why do you pray for others? Or why don't you pray for others? How do you pray for others? And what specifically are you praying for them? So these are some of the questions that Paul deals with or addresses just in his simple request for prayer that we're going to unpack this morning. So follow along in your copy of the scriptures as we read verses 30 through 33 of Romans chapter 15. Church, this is the word of God. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, 
to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the privilege it has been this morning to worship you with your people. And we ask now, Father, that you would keep us in that spirit of worship as we turn to your word and ask you to speak to us. God, we ask that as we wrestle with what Paul is saying in these few verses, that you would use this passage, Lord, to make us more faithful in speaking to you and with you on behalf of one another, praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, according to your will. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul begins verse 30 the very same way, very similar way that he began chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, there, there he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. This appealing is the language of urging. It's the language of pleading, of, of beseeching them. He's, he's urging them to pray. And whom is he urging? He's urging the brothers. Now, as we'll see evidenced in the next chapter, when we get into chapter 16, this word brothers, as we've seen before, is representative not just of the men in the church, but of all of those who were in the church there in Rome. This word brothers is a figure of speech that we know as a synecdoche. And a synecdoche, grammarians will tell us, is a word that is part of the whole that represents the whole. It's using part of the whole to represent the whole. It's like if I got a new car and I asked you, have you checked out my new wheels? I'm not literally asking you, have you gone and looked at the tires on my new car? I'm asking you what? Have you looked at my new car? I'm using the word wheels as a synecdoche, as a word that is part of the whole, but it represents the whole thing. The same is true here when Paul urges the brothers to pray for him in verse 30. And so the NIV is not wrong in its thought-for-thought translation of the scriptures when it translates verse 30 as, I urge you, brothers and sisters. And so what is he urging them to do? Obviously, he's urging them to pray. He's, he's, He's pleading with them. He's beseeching them to pray for him. So verses 30 through 33 is essentially a prayer request from the Apostle Paul to the Roman believers. He's asking them, pleading with them to pray for him on some specific things. And so as he lays out his prayer request in these verses, he's going to teach us four things about prayer, four aspects of prayer that ought to help shape our own prayer life. And I hope and pray that it does in fact do that, that it shapes my prayer life, that it shapes your prayer life, that it shapes even our corporate prayer life as a church. So he talks here about, first of all, the foundation of his prayer request. Then he addresses the fervency of that prayer request. And then he talks about the intercessory nature of his prayer request. And then finally, the request itself, the request of his request. So let's look, first of all, at the foundation of his prayer request. What does it mean there in verse 30 when Paul says, I appeal to you, bro- I appeal to you brothers by the Lord Jesus Christ 
and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers. That little word by means on the basis of or on account of. It's the channel through which something happens. And when we read this word in chapter 12, verse 1, we read it that way. There Paul says, I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to offer your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. On the basis of, on the account of, on account of the mercies of God, I want you to offer your lives as a sacrifice, live your lives sacrificially for Jesus. And that appeal to live in such a way was on the basis of or on account of the mercies of God displayed in the gospel. The mercies of God there did not describe the kind of sacrificial living that we are to live. Instead, they, they were the foundation of his appeal for us to live sacrificially for Jesus. So same way in this passage, um, we could say that the mercies of God, back in chapter 12, verse 1, before we move on from that, we could say it another way, that the mercies of God displayed in the gospel, because they are the foundation of his appeal, we could further say that the mercies of God in the gospel, that they were the fountain or the spring from which should flow that, that natural, that logical service of living lives as a sacrificial offering unto God. So let's take that same kind of mindset of using that word by back, back to chapter 15, verse 30. Here, Paul is urging the Roman believers to pray for him. And his request for their prayer is on the basis of or on account of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit. Now, some scholars say, that these two foundations for Paul's prayer request here, the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit, are describing the kind of prayers that Paul is asking them to pray. In other words, some commentators say that what he's referring to here are things like praying in Jesus' name. And certainly, Jesus himself tells us in John 14 and John 15 that when we ask for things, we're to ask in Jesus' name. They talk about how this might be referring to following the pattern of prayer that Jesus gives us in the Lord's Prayer or, or even following his example, following the example of Jesus when he prayed for us in John 17 on the night of his betrayal. He was interceding for us. And while all of those are true and all of those are good descriptions of the kind of biblical prayer that we should be offering to God on behalf of others, I don't think that... Paul is using these two phrases to describe the kinds of prayers that we should be praying. Instead, I think they're the foundation, they're, they're the, the, the fountain or the spring upon which Paul bases his appeal, his urging for the Roman believers to pray for him. And because they're the foundation for his appeal to them to pray for him, then these phrases are also the, the fountain or the springs which, from which our prayers ought to flow. They ought to flow from these springs. Paul says, I urge you to pray for me on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ and on the basis of and on account of the love of the Spirit. And so how are those two things, the fountains or the springs from which our prayers ought to flow? Well, let's, 
Think about the first phrase. The, lo- the Lord Jesus Christ. How is the Lord Jesus Christ the spring from which our prayers ought to flow? Well, actually, how could the Lord Jesus Christ not be the spring from which our prayers ought to flow? Think of, think of the, the ways. The, the gospel itself tells us that Jesus is the one who grants us access to the throne room of God. Jesus is the one who who gives us the right to speak with the Father because he has purchased that access like the song that we just sang. He's purchased access. He grants us access to God in prayer. Were it not for Jesus' sacrificial and substitutionary death on our behalf and his subsequent resurrection from the dead, we would not be granted access to speak with the Father He would not hear our prayers. This is why God does not answer the prayers of unbelievers because they are not granted access to speak with him. But if he has saved you by grace through faith in Christ alone, then you have access to speak with the Father through him. So the gospel reminds us that Jesus is the one who granted us access. But secondly, the fact that Jesus is the king of glory and deserves from us all of our honor, all of our praise, all of our glory, means that our prayers spring forth from his character as the king of glory, out of a desire to see his name glorified even more. So not only can we pray because of Jesus, because he's granted us access to him through Christ, but also we, we now desire to pray because of of who he is because we want this king of glory to be glorified more and more so we pray because of his name because of what he has granted us access to god and we pray for his name for his name to be glorified this was the essence of paul's prayer in second thessalonians chapter 1 in verses 11 and 12 where he says this to this end we always pray for you And what was his prayer request? That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his his power. So those are his requests. And what are his requests? That God God would grow them, that that, that God would make them worthy of his calling and may may fulfill every resolve for good and and that he may uh, fulfill every work of faith by his power. But why? What was the aim of his prayer? Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray, first of all, because of what Jesus has accomplished for us, that he's purchased us access to the throne room because of his substitutionary death on the cross. But also, secondly, we pray because of who he is. We pray because he is the king of glory. And because of that, the aim of our prayers, the aim of our prayers is the magnification of Jesus' glory, the exaltation of his name. That is the aim of our prayers because of who he is. And then finally, Paul refers here to the lordship of Jesus. He says his appeal to them for pray for him is to, to pray for him is on the basis of, on account of the Lord Jesus Christ. So because Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings, all our prayers are prayers of faith, trusting that he is the king, trusting that he is the Lord of lords, that everything that we pray about is under his sovereign 
and good kingly rule. So, for example, when he asks in verse 31 for the Romans to pray that he would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, we are to know and believe and trust and have faith that Jesus is sovereign over those unbelievers in Judea. He's sovereign over the Jewish authorities. That he's sovereign over the Roman authorities even. That he's sovereign over the president. That he's sovereign over Congress. That he's sovereign over the Supreme Court of the United States. That he's sovereign over nature. That he's sovereign over weather. That he's sovereign over your neighbor. That he's sovereign over your boss and over everything. And so in this sense, Paul is urging the Romans to, to pray in faith knowing and believing and trusting that Jesus is Lord, that that Jesus is King, and that if it is his will to deliver Paul from the unbelievers in Judea, then there's absolutely nothing that the unbelievers in Judea can do to thwart his sovereign will. He alone has the right and the authority and the power to do whatever he pleases with whomever he pleases. This This is a call to trust in the sovereignty of God. So, is the Lord Jesus Christ the spring from which your prayers flow? The Bible exhorts us to be a people of prayer. And if we are to be that, then we have to press into that idea that he is the Lord Jesus Christ and all that that means. He is our mediator, as we just sang about, who has granted us access to the throne room of God. And as our mediator, not only has he mediated our salvation, but he continues to intercede for us day by day, moment by moment. He is the king of glory who who deserved for us to to, to pray that his glory would continue to be magnified and glorified. He is Lord. He is king of kings. He is the ruler of the universe. And so we pray believing that he can do anything, anything. But then there's a second fountain that he, that he mentions here, a second spring from which our prayers ought to flow, and that is the love of the Spirit. He says, I, I urge you to pray for me, to strive together with, with me in prayer by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Now, I think before we go any further, kind of parenthetically here, we ought to note here the Trinitarian nature of Paul's prayer request. He says in verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second person of the Trinity. And by the love of the Spirit, that's the third person of the Trinity. To strive together with me in your your prayers to God on my behalf. That's the first person of the Trinity. The pattern of prayer in the New Testament. If you were to do a, a broad study of prayer in the New Testament, what you would find is that the, the normative pattern of prayer, not the exclusive pattern of prayer, not the universal and only pattern of prayer, but the normative pattern of prayer in the New Testament is to pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul hits on all three of them in, in verse 30. He's very Trinitarian, as are we. But what does it mean that we ought to pray on the basis of the love of the Spirit? I think we're to understand this in in two ways. First of all, again, the gospel of Jesus Christ is most fundamentally a gospel of love. 
Jesus himself, or, or Paul, Paul said of Jesus in Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is a display of love. And the primary role of the Holy Spirit, not the only role, but the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son, to glorify Jesus. And it is the love of God that we see when the Holy Spirit does his job and glorifies the Son and reminds us of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So in that sense, the love of the Spirit is another reminder that our, our prayer ought to spring forth from, ought to be motivated by the love of God displayed in the gospel. But I think there's another way to understand Paul's exhortation here to pray for him on the basis of the love of the Spirit. And that is to remember that it is the Spirit abiding in us which gives us the ability to love one another. And that love for one another ought to be one of those fountains from which spring forth our prayers for one another. Follow my logic uh, using 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 4, John is exhorting the believers to love one another. That's kind of one of his themes in that book. And in that particular chapter, in the second half of chapter 4 of 1 John, he's, he's exhorting them to love one another, and he says that is possible because of the Spirit abiding in us. He says in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God... And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And how are we born of God? It is through the Spirit who gives us new life in Christ. Then just a few verses later, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. How? Through the Spirit. And his love is perfected in us. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of the Spirit. And then verse 19, a few verses later, we love because he first loved us. In other words, God's love for us ought to spring forth in us loving others, in us loving one another. And our, uh, our love for others ought to be manifested, displayed in our prayers for one another talking to God on one another's behalf, lifting up one another's needs and requests, just as Paul is urging them to do in Romans 15. The love of God we see here is not just something that we are to be reminded of. It is that, but it's more than that. The love of God is not just something that we're, we're to be reminded of. The love of God is something that is in us. Paul said in Romans 5, verse 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So, so the love of God that's in us, through the abiding Holy Spirit who, who comes to reside in believers in Christ, whom he has saved by grace through faith, we are the temple of God. The Spirit comes to reside in us, and, and as the Spirit resides in us, the love of God resides in us, and that love in us is part of the spring from which our prayers for one another ought to flow. So if God is 
urging you to grow in your intercessory prayer, in your prayer for fellow believers in Christ on behalf of others. Remember that if, if you love them, you will talk to God about them. And the love that you have for them is the love that the Father has placed in you because the Spirit died for you and rose again and placed His Spirit in you. So the love of Christ is in you and it ought to flow out to others and that is partly manifested in our prayers for one another. If we love them, we will pray for them. So th- that's the first point. I know it was long, but the foundation of our praying is critical. The, the, the motivation, the incentive, the, the, the fountain, the spring from which our prayers ought to flow is the love of the Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ and all that, that means. So if your prayer life is suffering, if it's, not, if, it not, if it's not what it should be, if it's not what you want it to be, if you want to grow in your faithfulness to pray for others, then, then press into those ideas. Be reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ has granted you access to the throne room of God. The veil that separated the outer temple from the inner temple has been torn in two from the top to the bottom. And you can speak to God on behalf of others. You can whisper into the ear of Jesus, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and he will whisper that name to the Father. What an incredible privilege that is. Be reminded that Jesus is our King of glory who deserves for us to pray with an aim towards Him being glorified even more, that that is the aim of our prayers. Not just that He would give us what, he want, what we want, but that He would answer these prayers in such a way that He would be glorified. And be reminded that He is Lord and that nothing is impossible for Him. And be reminded of the love of Christ displayed in the gospel. And may the love of Christ in you and I through the abiding Holy Spirit be manifested in our praying for one another. That's the foundation of our praying. Paul next covers another aspect of his prayer request, and that is the fervency of his prayer request. He says to strive. I urge you to strive together with me in your prayers. This describes not necessarily the fervency of his request, it describes the manner of prayer that he's urging the Roman believers to pray, to pray with fervency. He doesn't just ask them to pray. He asks them to strive together with him in their prayers on his behalf. The word strive means to fight, to wrestle, or to contend with, to struggle with, It's a word that was used to refer to athletes who competed against one another in, for example, a a wrestling match. So with whom do we strive? Against whom do we strive? The Bible is replete with answers to that question. We strive first and foremost against sin and against Satan. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we, we strive against, we contend with sin and Satan and evil. But secondly, we're to strive in our prayers against unbelief. Like the father of the demon-possessed boy in Mark chapter 9 
who cried out, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. We're to, we're to strive against the, the, the root of unbelief in our heart. Thirdly, in our praying, we are to be striving against distractions, distractions that would keep us from praying, of which there are myriads in our day and age. And then fourthly, we're also to strive against sin in our lives, the sin that, that actually hinders our prayers. As the psalmist said in Psalm 66, verse 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So we're to strive against, fight against, battle against sin that hinders our prayers. Now, these are all biblical means of striving that, that have very real bearing on our prayer life. But there's another kind of striving that I think gets more particularly at what Paul is addressing here in Romans 15, and that is striving with God in prayer. He says in verse 30, he urges them to strive together with me in your prayers to God. In other words, you're, you're striving with God. You're, in a sense, wrestling with God in prayer. Now, we don't, we don't strive with God as if he is our enemy like sin and Satan and evil and, and unbelief. But we, we are to labor in prayer. We are to toil in prayer. We are to struggle in prayer. To pray without ceasing, he says. To bring our requests to the Father fervently and persistently because we know that he is our only hope. And in desperation, we take hold of him in our prayers on behalf of one another. This is the kind of struggling in prayer that, that Paul himself spoke of when he wrote to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, he said this in the first two verses. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen my face. What was the struggle that he was referring to here? He hadn't even seen them yet. This was a, a struggle in prayer. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the fullness of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. He's praying for their faith. He's praying that they would be matured. He's praying that God would grow them deep in their delight of Christ and in their delight of God and in their trust of God. And then he says three verses later in verse 5, For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit. He's talking about praying for them. He's struggling in prayer for them on their behalf. In our prayers, do we struggle? In your prayers, do you, do you toil? Is it a struggle? Is it, is it striving, wrestling? Paul doesn't just ask them to mention him to God in passing. Hey, guys, if y'all... If y'all happen to remember me in your prayers, would you put in a good word for me with the Father upstairs? No. He says, I urge you, I plead with you to strive together with me in your prayers, to wrestle over this, to toil over this. There is a fervency that Paul is asking of them that 
is absent in my prayer life. What about yours? Does your prayer life depict this kind of toiling and, and, and struggling? This kind of praying is like warfare. It's like competing in a wrestling match. And afterwards, you are just dog-tired. You are exhausted. It's reminiscent to me of the kind of prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed as he sweated drops of blood. Now, I'm not saying that after praying we should be sweating drops of blood. But perhaps after praying, we ought to be more tired. We ought to emerge from our times of prayer. We ought to get up from our knees exhausted as if we had just done battle. Paul says, strive together with me in your prayers. Now this leads, consequently, to the third aspect of Paul's prayer request here because he says, strive together with me in your prayers Paul is asking them here to to pray for his ministry when he gets back to Jerusalem. And he's telling them that when you pray for me, you're on the front lines of battle with me. When you pray for me, you're, you're struggling alongside me in my ministry in Jerusalem. So the third aspect of Paul's prayer that we see here is, is the intercessory nature of his prayer request. Paul urges them to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. That that is how intercessory prayer works. We intercede to God on behalf of others. And when we do this, we're on the front lines with them. We're engaged in battle with them. We're striving together. We're struggling with them in their ministry. And because of this, church intercessory prayer builds a very deep spiritual unity in the body of Christ, in the church. Because it means that we're striving together in whatever we're doing. I would challenge you to put this to the text test. The next time that you're tempted to hold a grudge against someone else, against another believer, more specifically against another believer in this body of Christ, a fellow covenant member. You're, you're, you're tempted to hold a grudge for whatever reason. I would challenge you to strive together in prayer for them. Toil in prayer for them. Wrestle with God in prayer for them, for their faith, that they would grow in their faith, that they would grow in their delight of God, that God would give them grace in their gospel ministry on God's behalf in the church. And I would suggest to you that perhaps your bandwidth for also being able to hold a grudge against them will weaken and wane. I want to move quickly now to the fourth aspect of Paul's prayer request that we see in this passage, and that is the actual request itself, the request of his prayer request. What is it that Paul asks them to be praying for? What is the content of his prayer request? It's threefold. 
We find it in verses 31 and 32. He says, That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So there's three prayer requests. First of all, to be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. He's talking there specifically about the Jewish unbelievers, the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Because he knows that they are hostile to the gospel and that they are hostile to followers of Jesus. Secondly, he asks for prayer that his service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Um, Part of what he's referring to there is his very ministry, Paul's very ministry among the Gentiles. That he was called to take this gospel, this very Jewish faith, this very Jewish message to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. And he is praying, he wants the Roman believers to be praying that the Jewish believers in Jerusalem would accept his ministry as very valid and very needed among the Gentiles. But this also is a reference to the financial offering, and I would say most predominantly this is a reference to the financial offering that he was bringing to the poor saints in Jerusalem. This offering, this collection, financial collection that he had collected among the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. He, he referenced this earlier in chapter 15 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And so here he's asking for prayer that the saints in Jerusalem would accept this collection as what it is meant to be, a demonstration of unity. And a demonstration of brotherly love from fellow believers in Macedonia. That's his second request. And then thirdly, he asked them to pray that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So he asked them to pray that God would, would grant him the ability and the, the opportunity to come to them in Rome, visit that church, and that that would be a time of joy and refreshing. So those, that's the content of his request. Two things I want to note, I want us to note about the content of his prayer request. First of all, I want us to see that the focus of his request is gospel ministry, not himself. The focus of his prayer request is for mission and gospel ministry, not just for things that he wants to happen in his life. When Paul asked them to pray that he would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, he's not asking this for his own comfort and safety. Paul wants to finish the task. He wants to complete the mission of preaching the gospel where Christ has not even been named. Pioneer missions is his aim. And so, and so he's, he, he wants to finish that. And so he's, he's not asking to be delivered just so that he would have a nice, safe time in Jerusalem. Just like early on in his ministry, right after God saved him radically on the road to Damascus, he then went into Ma- to Damascus and he began to preach Christ crucified. He began to preach boldly the gospel. And guess what? The Jewish leaders didn't like that at all. They began to plot against him to kill him. And, and the believers who were are, who are around Paul at that point knew that God had, had, had a mission that he wanted Paul to complete. And so uh, they took Paul and they lowered him through a wall, through a window in the wall of Damascus in a, in a bucket and, and delivered him. And that deliverance 
from those Jewish leaders in Damascus enabled further gospel ministry. And perhaps now Paul thought maybe that same kind of deliverance would be in order when he gets back to Jerusalem because he, he, knows, he knows what awaits him there. He knows those same Jewish authorities that crucified Jesus, that they're still there. And the believers there were under lock and key because of the danger that was there and the hostility towards the gospel and towards followers of Jesus. And so his request was that he would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. But Paul was not primarily concerned about his safety for his own selfish reasons. He wanted to go on preaching Christ. He wanted to go on encouraging the saints. He wanted to go on building the kingdom. Remember last time we talked about the the point at which, as Paul is making his way back to Jerusalem, at one point, at one stop, the prophet Agabus prophesies that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be bound in chains. And that when Paul's traveling companions heard this, they urged him, don't go back there. Don't, Don't go back to Jerusalem. Remember his response. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. Acts 21, verse 13. Then Paul answered them, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. The only reason that he asked them to pray that he be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea was so that he could further the mission that God had given to him so that he could go on preaching the gospel. It was a a prayer request for gospel ministry. But consider the second prayer request. Why, Why did he ask for prayer that his service for Jerusalem would be acceptable to the saints? Again, there was a ministry focus to his request here. He wanted the Jewish believers to be encouraged in their faith, to be encouraged in their fight against sin, and to know that the Gentile believers were one with them and that they had their back and that, and that they stood ready to provide them assistance in everything that they needed and that God was going to be their provision and that he might even use Gentile believers to do that. He wanted to encourage them in their faith through this, this gift, this collection. Same with that third prayer request, to be able to come and visit the Roman believers once he's done dropping off that financial offering. He wanted to minister among the Roman believers, and he wanted to be refreshed by them for a time so that then he could do what? He told us earlier in chapter 15, so that he could go on to Spain. He mentions it twice in chapter 15. I want to come back to you and be refreshed by you and be encouraged by you, and then I want you to send me on to Spain because I have to preach the gospel where Christ has not even been named. That's the focus of his prayer. His prayer request had more to do with mission and extending the gospel than with himself. Now, church, don't hear me. This doesn't mean that we should not pray for one another's health. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for one another's struggles and one another's needs. We absolutely should be praying for these things. But I would submit to you that the primary flavor of our intercessory prayer should have more to do with gospel ministry, making disciples of all nations, than it has to do with our own well-being. And that perhaps even our prayers for our and one another's well-being 
ought to be with an eye towards us being able to engage more faithfully in God's gospel ministry to make disciples of all nations. So how can you be applying that? Praying for one another in the body of Christ. How can you be praying for your church? How can you be praying for the mission of your church? Man, myriad are the ways, aren't they? Tomorrow morning, a group of students are going to be leaving early in the morning along with some very brave chaperones to go to creed camp, to go to youth camp. This is not just a vacation for the youth. It's never the intention. Be praying for them. Be praying for God to do a powerful work in their life to make himself real to them, to grow them in that seedling faith if they know him, and if they don't, that he might give them the faith to trust in him, to do eternal work in the lives of our students, to grow their faith so that when they leave the home and they get out on their own, they have a solid foundation underneath them. Pray for the chaperones, that God would give them patience and strength, that God would use them as well. Pray for those who are preaching. I'm preaching Tuesday night. I will, I will selfishly ask that you pray for me, that God would give me the words to say to exhort these young people to follow Jesus with reckless abandon. In a couple of weeks, we have a team leaving to go to Boston to serve alongside um, uh, one of our church partners, Seven Mile uh, Church in Waltham, Massachusetts to serve alongside Kevin and Lauren Sanders. Be praying. Be praying for God to, to use this team. Be praying for that to be an encouragement for that church in Boston as they toil the very hard soil of gospel ministry in New England. Be praying for our, our women's ministry as they study the Psalms this summer and, and, and learn to connect with the very heart of God. Be praying for the women's ministry as they prepare for their retreat in August. It's not a vacation. It is time that we want God to do a mighty work among the women of our church. Be praying for your church. Be praying for one another's ministry in the church. Be praying for those in your base group who are, who are serving in a particular way that, that God would use them and, and give them favor with God's people and with the lost. Be praying for one another as we engage in faithful evangelism and seek to bring the gospel to the people around us. Be praying for your brothers and sisters as they step out in faith to do this. This is our privilege to intercede on their behalf and speak about them and for them to the Father. What a privilege that is. Pray for your church. Are these the things that occupy the majority place in your prayer life, in our prayer life? Or is our prayer life primarily focused on one another's health and happiness? Let us intercede for one another, church. Let us, but let us count it a privilege to struggle with one another on the front lines of battle by praying to God on their behalf that God would grow us in him, that he would grow our faith in him, that he would grow our delight in him, that he would give us strength as we fight and battle against sin and put to death the deeds of the flesh so that he might use us in gospel ministry in the church for his glory. 
that's the first thing I want us to note about the content of Paul's prayer request here. But the second thing that I want us to note very soberly is that God does not grant Paul all of the things that he asks the Roman believers to pray for. Was he delivered from the unbelievers in Judea? Well, I, I suppose in a sense you could say that he was. He was delivered from death because they didn't kill him. But he wasn't delivered from them fully. Instead, he was arrested by them and beaten by them and chained by him and put on trial by them. What about the saints in Jerusalem? How did they, did they find the collection that Paul brought acceptable? Yes, they did. That prayer request was granted fully. It was a tremendous blessing and encouragement to them. What about the third request? That by God's will I may come to you and be ref- uh, with joy and be refreshed in your company. Did God grant Paul that request? Yes, partly, but no, not fully. He did return to Rome. And although there was joy in his heart, it was not as he had hoped. He was bound in chains, and he was under house arrest. But even in chains, even under house arrest, Paul was refreshed by their company. In chapter 28 of the book of Acts, Dr. Luke records what happens after they were shipwrecked and they began to make their way to Rome. Dr. Luke records what happened. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So was that prayer request of Paul's granted? Yes and no. The point here is that God doesn't always give us what we want or ask for, but he always gives us what we need. Now, this might lead some of us to ask very understandably, well, if he's not going to give us what what we want and, and what we ask for, but only what I need, then why should I ask him for anything? That's a great question, and one that is not ultimately satisfied or served simply by saying because he commands us to. Yes, he does command us to. And yes, we ought to pray because he commands us to. But that doesn't ultimately satisfy the crisis of faith that is embedded in that question. If God is sovereign and he's only going to do what he knows is best regardless of what we ask for, then why should we ask him to do anything? Let us admit without equivocation, God is sovereign, completely sovereign. He's in control of all things, and he is unchanging. And we don't change his mind through prayers. 
And yes, God will ultimately do what is right and what is best and what will ultimately be for our good and his glory. That's the promise of Romans 8.28. Regardless of what we pray for, God will accomplish his will. But, don't miss this. Regardless of what we pray for, God will accomplish his will. But God always uses means to accomplish his will. And part of the means that God uses to accomplish his will are the prayers of his people. Our God delights in the faith-filled prayers of his people. And so not only does he ordain all things, he ordains all prayers. And specifically, the prayers of his people that he intends to grant according to his will. So let me just put this very simply, if your understanding of the sovereignty of God leads you to pray less, then you need to rethink your understanding of the sovereignty of God. And you need to rethink your theology of prayer. God is completely sovereign. And our prayers don't change him, and our prayers don't change his mind. But God uses the prayers of his people as a means of accomplishing his will. There is no paradox here. We trust both of these truths. God is all sovereign and all knowing and prayer changes things according to the will of God. Believe both and refuse any theology that will lead you to deny either of those things. Let's pray. God, those of us in this room, there may be others besides myself who are convicted that our prayer lives are not what they should be. We are distracted. We are riddled with unbelief. We have sin in our hearts and lives that hinder our prayers And yet we know that Jesus died even for that. And that he can make us faithful in our prayer life. And so God, we ask you to forgive us for our lack of prayer. We ask you to forgive us for not loving one another by praying for one another and interceding for one another. God, we ask that you would grow our faithfulness in prayer. God, we ask in Jesus' name that you would powerfully remind us as we bend our knees, as we bow our heads, that you would remind us of the lordship of your son, Jesus Christ. All that he accomplished on the cross and all that he is is the king of glory and the Lord of lords. And may the love of Jesus Christ in us through the abiding spirit spring forth in love through our prayers for one another. What a privilege it is to speak with you about our brothers and sisters. Grow us. Grow us in that in our lives, Lord. 
may the focus and the aim of our prayers for one another not be their their comfort and necessarily their happiness but may the aim of our prayers be their holiness a growing of their faith a deeper delight in you a greater effectiveness and faithfulness in gospel ministry Lord so that you might be glorified in them grow us in our prayer lives we pray and God we we pray for those perhaps in this room who really can't speak with you right now the spirit with which they were created to have fellowship with you that spirit is dead in them through sin, through rebellion against you, they can't know you in that way. They cannot commune with you in that way. And God, we beseech you now on their behalf to give them faith in Jesus as their only hope to be rescued from what they deserve. Oh God, would you lead them across the line of faith to trust in Jesus Christ as their only hope to bring them into a relationship with you and to give them the hope of the resurrection for themselves. Oh God, grow us to be more faithful and striving together with one another to you on one another's behalf. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen.